Welcome to our latest Northern Business Leaders interview in association with the business services firm Deloitte. Today I'm talking to the founder and chairman of the High Street Group, a business that was founded in 2008. Gary Forrest runs the business. The business is divided into three sections. High Street Residential with a turnover approaching £400 million, delivering private rented residential accommodation. Hospitality through a portfolio of boutique hotels and construction through High Street Developments, which has a turnover of around £50 million a year. Gary Forrest, welcome to Northern Business Leaders. Hello. Well, first of all, let's talk about the business essentially in uh, the statistics. I've given some turnover now. Is it profitable? How many staff do you have? How many, how many sites are you working on? Um, we, we work on about 15 to 20 development sites at the present moment time. Uh, I think we've got four or five hotels, several bars and restaurants that operate with inside them hotels. Um, the business just had a valuation done of just shy of a billion pound. Um, with turnover, run rate for turnover, certainly going into the next year will be exceeding 450 to 500 million pound. Mm. Um, and we'll make an EBITDA profit of around about 8 million pound this year and about 30 million pound the year after it. And we've targeted just shy of, or just over 100 million pound in 2022. So on anyone's judgment, that is a successful business, a profitable business, and most importantly, a growing business, a, a business with pace. Let's go back a bit though, because you, like I, didn't go to university. You went to Spennymoor Comprehensive School in County Durham. What were the landmarks in the journey from Spennymoor Comprehensive School to a uh, chairing a business with a valuation of over a billion pounds? Oh, it was quite a long journey, to be honest with you. I, started, I actually, when I came out of school, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I went on one of these Margaret Thatcher's community schemes where you went and did up the local parks and mm. painted local uh, authority buildings, etc. Um, and then in, when I was about 18, nearly 19, I decided to go for an interview with Allied Dunbar, which was a, quite a large or very large financial services company at the time, to become a financial advisor. Um, and I went along for the interview, only 19 year old, I didn't, know what to, I didn't know whether they were going to be interested, if I'm honest with you. And they did one of these psychometric tests. And um, I remember sitting and waiting for the results of this test. And when they came in, it was one of them old printers, you know, that with the reams of paper came off the old printers. And uh, one of the things, actually, the score actually went off the piece of paper. And the, 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 the area manager and the managers, two of them interviewed me at the time. They were, well, this, we've never seen this before. What, what's, what's this about? I says, well, I don't know. It's your test. And, and he says, uh, well, can, can we ask you a question? He says, what motivates you? Do, do, would you like a Porsche? And I was like, yeah, if there's one going, I'll have a Porsche <laughs> if you want. You know, but if I have a Porsche, <coughs> and can I have a Ferrari? <laughs> he says, oh, so it's a Ferrari you want. If you can get a Ferrari, I says, no, if I have a Ferrari, I'll want a Lamborghini. <laughs> it's a Lamborghini. You like Lamborghinis? Not really. I'm not really bothered about Lamborghinis. Get me a Lamborghini, I'm going to want a yacht. And if I get a yacht, I'm going to want a bigger yacht. And eventually I might want a plane. It, there is no end to that ambition. And um, they hired me that day, actually. And I went on to become a financial advisor at 19 year old. <clears throat> and what I established very, very quickly was there wasn't a lot of people willing to take financial advice, investment advice and pension advice of a 19 year old lad from Spennymoor. Mm -hmm. So I find a, found a, a little niche for myself and I specialized in mortgages. 
And I was very lucky to a, degree, to a degree because interest rates at that time had just gone through the roof and at some point I think they were reaching 15%. And um, there, was some, there was two or three mortgage lenders brought out some, some mortgage uh, products which are around about 8 and 9%. So it was huge discounts on people's mortgages and it created a, a business for myself, remortgaging. When remortgaging never really existed in, in mm-hmm. them days remortgaging people out of 15% mortgages into, into 9 and 10% mortgages. So that's how I started, uh, to, uh, built that part of the business. And eventually... Which I, I suppose it taught you about property as well. It taught me about property. property. It, brought me about, it taught me about funding on property. <clears throat> um, and eventually um, I left Allied Dunbar and set up my own mortgage brokerage. Um, and we built that. We were the largest... Uh, mortgage packager in the north of England and eventually in 2003 I sold it to GMAC. GMAC is the finance, financial arm of uh, General Motors. The company was called High Street Home Loans uh, and um, I kept, went and sat on the executive board of, of GMAC RFC and we, were, we became in a very short period of time the eighth largest mortgage lender in the UK and my the, the business within there which I managed for them which I operated, uh, I was in control of capital markets, product design, underwriting, arrears management, everything you'd expect from a mortgage lender. We were doing just shy of a billion pound a year, 72 staff in, in Newcastle. Um, and it, it, about two years later, GMAC was sold to a company, or 50% of it sold to a company called Cerberus. And Cerberus were flying in executives because they couldn't understand how we were making so much money turn over a billion pound a year of mortgages with just 72 staff. So they were flying people in from America just to sit and one of them sat with me for nearly two weeks trying to understand what we were doing or how we were doing it and what the, what the secret was. And there was no real secret to be honest with you. Uh, it's just about quality, good quality people. Um, and then um, the, the credit crunch happened to be honest. And um, I made one huge mistake in my life which I'll, I'll never make it again, but I signed a five-year earnout. Right. And the earnout, I sold the business in, on Valentine's Day 2003. So five years from Valentine's Day 2003 takes you to Valentine's Day 2008. Um, the credit crunch really uh, started in, in real uh, pace in 2007, mid-2007. Uh, and... In October, November 2007, GMAC shut down all its mortgage operations. Mm. So my five-year earnout disappeared. Just gone. And I, I was on. I was forecasted. I was to make 40% of all the profits generated through my division uh, over the five years, all added up and rolled up every year until 2008 on Valentine's Day, and it would be paid out in one lump sum at that point. We've never sat down, Nicola was, who's still my peer now was my peer at the time, we've never actually sat down and calculated how much that was. But it will have been, that 40% will have been in excess of 40 to 50 million pound. And instead, I got a redundancy settlement. So you can imagine, <laughs> uh, it was quite a, quite a sobering a, experience. A sobering experience, yeah, yes. yeah. And, um, y- y- you know, but I- I'll be honest with you. I never had it in the first place, so mm. I've never missed it. Yeah. What I have, what I did get, was ne- nearly five years sat on board level 
at an organisation like GMAC, working with people from Cerberus, working with people from GMAC, embracing their financial management, understanding capital markets, understanding how to operate at that sort of level, at board level, and that and that is worth 40, 50 million pound of anybody's money. Yeah, that's an education at that level, isn't it? It is. So, uh, as well as learning about it, and as well as having this exceptional ambition that you've just described, you've also, in 2008, took a risk. Now, what other than necessity prompted you to take the risk? Was it just that there were no other opportunities for you, or was it your desire to own your business? To what they used to say in the 80s was, you eat what you kill. Yeah, to be honest with you, I've only ever owned, really, apart from, um, I've only ever been self-employed, apart from a little spell when I first left school, and that gap at GMAC, but I was running and managing, and I was the director of all them operations. And I saw an opportunity in 2008, and what I saw an opportunity for was, um, in the latter days at GMAC, we'd started to do development finance, and I'd sat, I'd sat on the executive committee looking, how do we bring that product to the marketplace? And what I saw an opportunity in 2008 to do was just to lend money to small developers on a lot of sites that had, because of the credit, credit crunch had been mothballed and the yeah. developers had gone bankrupt or the businesses had been closed down, predominantly because of no reason of, the, of theirs. And what, what we started to do, I raised a little bit of money, I put quite a bit of cash in it myself, and we started lending money to developers to help them get some of these mothballed sites going. Um, and we did that for two or three years, and we did we did quite well actually. We we're probably one of the first. It, it, I was probably one of the first lenders back yeah. into the marketplace, yes. if I'm honest. And, and it was a lenders' market at that time. And uh, well, was, there was only me and me and other I think doing yeah. it to be honest. But but I was able to charge high interest rates for that. Uh, I was able to take a profit share. Mm -hmm. And what what happened? Of what I saw happen was all of a sudden. About three or four years later, a lot of lenders started coming back. They started looking at that opportunity. The, 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 prices, the pricing came down, the risk was going up, and at that point I decided it was time to get out. I got an offer to scale it up and put more funding in, but it meant going 50-50 with them, and I wasn't particularly keen to do that. So we decided at that point to exit the lending and do the development ourselves, and that's how the development arm of the business has grown. And that needs confidence as well, because the, the risk is all with the developer in the end. But presumably you felt that that education you'd had and your witnessing of other people doing it as you lent gave you the experience to make the right judgment calls. So when you're doing a development, what are the key things that you look at when you're making a judgment call? A prospective development. Um, that's a difficult question, to be honest with you. Um, depends in which market that, that we're looking to develop in, you know. Um, the reality is people think property development's easy. People think anybody can do property development. In them first couple of years, after we stopped the lending side, we found it very difficult. Mm. We found it difficult to find the right sites. We found it difficult to deliver the product to the standard that we wanted, the price we wanted. So we had a, we, we kind of scaled it all back and started again. And, and it's all about your homework, how, how much homework that you do and how, you know, how hard you work that. Um, and we've actually, and the infrastructure you've got to deliver, as you try to go rock up and do it yourself, you're going to, over a long period of time, I, I genuinely think you'll lose money. Mm. If you've got a good quality team that are doing every phase of it and, and have experience and they know how, how to deliver developments, you can be successful at it. And that's what I scaled back, just build that team properly, get the right people in place 
and use their expertise and their experience to deliver the right sites. And if you brought the team in-house, so if planning, architects, management of building projects, actual contractors, how many of those are in-house and how many of them are trusted partners? In the PRS business, most of it's subcontracted out. Mm -hmm. Uh, within the, the small development business, high street developments, then the construction part and a lot of the work is done in-house. But that's because of scale and the need for the indemnities that the professional partners bring for us. Okay, let's talk about two elements of the three elements of your business. The PRS and then in a moment the uh, boutique hotels, the leisure side. You set out a vision, and I'll, I'll read from what you've said, to develop high quality properties where people live, stay, whether it's purchasing, renting or a short stay at a hotel, you aim to be a three billion pound business in the next few years. So let's talk about PRS. It's a new emerging part in the north of England of the housing market, quite well established in London and other international cities. Tell us what PRS is and what you see it bringing to the north of England. Um, so PRS is, is building out homes for people that are just for rent. And they're not for sale, they're purely for rent. So the, in my opinion, the, the, the rental market in the UK is broken. Historically, and it's broken for several reasons. One of the reasons is historically, the most of the buy-to-let stock is owned by what we call remote fractional owners, the likes of me and you. Yeah. You might own a, 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 a house on a estate, for instance, that we bought six, seven years ago, um, and we're renting it out on short-haul tenancy agreement. Mm. We've probably never even seen the building. Right, a lot of this building, a lot of the housing estates from the from the early two thousands and the nineteen nineties, etc. I would have thought thirty to forty percent of that stock is currently owned and rented out through buy to let owners. Mm. And what you see on them estates is is that asset depreciates in value. The reason it depreciates is there's no community there because everybody who lives in them lives in on a, is operating on a six month short haul tenancy agreement and they can't, they've got no stability. They don't know whether me as the landlord might in six months time decide to sell that house. Mm -hmm. So they're not gonna maintain and look after it like a home. Mm -hmm. They're gonna live there and there's a big difference. They also <coughs> don't focus on work hard and build the communities because they don't know whether they're gonna uplift, it, uplift themselves in a few months time and have to move somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So there's, since, the count, since the government started selling all the council housing off, the communities in these areas have been broken. What PRS does, the way we're doing it, is we bring the institutions into the marketplace. And these building blocks, these apartments, and these housing estates are owned by the institutions, and they're purely for rent. So yes, every block has every, one owner. Every, it's not lots of The whole of block has one owner. The whole housing estate has one owner. That owner is committed to maintaining an, uh, the quality of that stock, the external appearance, how you know the management of it and as and you as a tenant know that as long as you pay your rent you can stay there forever now you start to rebuild communities again and that's something we've really got to work much harder at in the UK that's what PRS can deliver and that's where we focus a lot of our energy at the present moment time. and the people that you're aiming this uh, rented stock at are not necessarily people who traditionally rent, for it's not social housing, for example, quite often professional people will be moving into these blocks. The dynamics of people who rent now has totally changed. There's a, you know, there's been reports done by Savills and several other companies at the present moment, about 30, 40% of the population will be renting in about five to six years time, 10 years time, at least 40, 50% of the stock 
housing stock will be rented stock. People will be renting as opposed to home ownership. And the reality is there's a cycle or a journey you could actually go on, which we can't at the present moment time, that we should be able to go on. You can in America, you can in Germany, you can in a lot of other Western European countries, but at this moment in time in the UK it's very difficult. Start off a student, and the student accommodation is well developed. You've seen the quality of the mm. student accommodation from when you went to university mm. to what you've got now. Yeah, You've got cinemas in them, you've got bars in them, you've, they're like little hotels, a lot of them. Mm. Then you've got what we, what I class as the first phase PRS, which is the apartment blocks that we're building, like Hadrian's Tower, like Middlewood Plaza. The, the apartment blocks we're building in town, uh, town and city centres. City centres and towns are going through a regeneration program, and where the the the, the ownership of them, the the tenants of them blocks will be people who are coming out with student accommodation. They're used to renting. They want to continue renting, and they want to be in the town and city centres. Um, the next phase of that is your family homes. You know, getting into building housing estates sort of purely for rent. Homes for everybody that you can rent and you can have and you can build a community. And at some point, we all look to retire and the housing stock for people wanting to, to retire into a nice, good quality apartment uh, just for rent is very, very poor in the UK. Mm. So there's a huge opportunity across the whole housing marketplace. And it doesn't matter which segment you tap into, students probably is well, de you know, well delivered on. The other three have got a huge opportunity. The government have set a target of 300,000 new homes in the UK every year. They're missing the target, it's 221,000, mm. or a little bit less if you look at different criteria. Um, do you think that this element of the housing sector that you're now developing in the north of England, it's still fresh, you're bringing it some life, is one of the components to helping the government hit that target? It's the main component, if I'm honest with you, because the, ma the major shortage of housing is in the rental sector. Good quality, good quality housing stock in the rental sector, whichever one of them rental sectors it is. That's where the main shortage is. If you go into any Bellwears or Persimmon housing estate, you will see houses for sale. You know, we can talk about delivering this amount of houses. You probably just couldn't get them that amount of mortgages through, even mm. if you built them quick enough, because mm. that's not where the need is. The need is in rental, good quality rental accommodation. The majority of buy-to-let housing stock at the present moment in time is a big. There's 50 percent of it is under social uh, living standards. They're talking about bringing new governance in and controls around landlords as to what the, the quality of the block, the, the housing that they're renting out. That's needed as a, as a matter of urgency, but actually the people who can build these the, 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 and, and deliver the homes that people need are the likes of ourselves working with institutions that see a real opportunity. Uh, they're investing in property. That's one of the main infrastructure things of the, within the UK. They've got, you know, they've got stability in, in, in the legal process in the UK on the housing marketplace. You've got good, you've got decent returns on rent, and you've got regular income coming in. Mm. So, I, me, me personally, I think the real opportunity to deliver them numbers is to open up the, uh, the rental marketplace, encourage the institu institutions into there, yeah, and start delivering into that marketplace. Before we go and see your latest project, let me just have a couple of minutes on another element of your business, the leisure and boutique hotels element. You've got an increasing number of these uh, premises. How many is it now? Hotels, I think we've got f uh, four. We're in the process of building two more. 
um, and we've got several bars and restaurants yeah. attached to that as well. Now, it's, it's an interesting sector because it is growing and i would be interested in what you think is the reason it's growing. And also, it's not easy to manage. Quite a lot of the workforce is sometimes transient, they're temporary or part-time workers. So how have you managed to make a success of it? We're told that bars, are, for instance, pubs are closing several a day in this country. How have you managed to make it work? Um, we're making it work by delivering. Um, people want experiences these days. They spend the money on the, the necessities and then everything after that, in my opinion, they spend on experiences. They want to go away for weekends. They want to go and enjoy life. Um, and we're look, looking to do is deliver somewhere they can they can actually do that. But that's not the reason why we have that part of the business. What we've learned from America and Germany and a few other places actually these apartment these PRS blocks are also best served uh, by hospitality aspects to it. So, for instance, if we can put restaurants and coffee shops and and champagne lounges within that block, they've a lot more opportunity for us to uh, to squeeze what we call the gross net to, to make mm -hmm. sure there's less voids. More and more people want to stay there for longer. We've learned that from America that if you've got a friend living in an apartment block or on a housing estate, a good friend, you'll stay there five to seven years longer. So how do we integrate people within an apartment block to create a community within an apartment block where you bring them places where they can have a drink together, they can have a meal together, you know, and we also enables us to to uh, deliver good quality commercial space within the blocks. Who wants to live on the ground floor? Mm. Nobody. Yeah. And you go around any city centre, you will see badly designed apartment blocks where the ground floor is totally wasted because they haven't known what to do with it. Mm. And what we do is we pre-design all that in. We work with the likes of Bidvest, who will then look at a block where we're building that block and and find a solution for the commercial element on the ground floor and on the rooftop of that space. Um, and that's coffee shops, restaurants. So what we've been doing is we've been, we've owned some hotels because we think there's an opportunity there. Uh, but we're, we're, we're putting a lot of bars and restaurants in that which will actually ultimately be rolled out across the whole of the UK into these apartment blocks. And there's a lot of initiatives that we're bringing in. It'll virtually, in some of them, Hadrian's Tower, you may as well, you'll be, you'll be like living in a hotel. You'll have every service. You, 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 you have your apartment cleaned if you want it. You can have a grab-and-go breakfast. There'll be, there's a champagne lounge on the rooftop. There's, there's poker nights, there's book readings, there's, there's theatre visits. You know, the, 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 we will create a community with inside that block that will stop people wanting to move out. Well, that's an ample point for us to stop this interview and move on to location and see what you're doing to change the face of Newcastle. Thank you. Floor 19 of Hadrian's Tower, uh, not quite the top, but near the top. What a view! Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Imagine living in here. Uh, fantastic. Northumberland, the yeah. Tyne, you can see Tyne Bridge and the Sage. Yeah. Tell me about this building in numbers. We've got uh, 27 storeys, 162 apartments, we've poured 6,000 cubic metres of concrete, uh, we've got a sales value of about £46 million. Um, and a think, GVA? Um, yeah, 46 million. 46 million, fantastic. And the, the, the view is great, but, and, and by the way, just behind us, we can see 
Sir John Hall's St James's Park. Yeah, just a little bit higher, we might have been able to see a game on match day. <laughs> I suppose you know Sir John is a great, a great establishment icon of Newcastle in the business world. Uh, he's organised the building of uh, our cathedral, St James's Park. But now you have your own sense of civic responsibility. This is going to be an iconic building. It certainly is. I think it's been designed to be to be that way as well. It, I mean, it's going to have a bronze facade. Um, at first, the plan was that we would we were just going to have the rooftop lounge open so many days a year, and we've we've changed that now, and we're going to go 364 days a year. It's going to be a Lauren Perry lounge, mm. open to the public, you know, and I think it'll be a real a real opportunity for people to take advantage of these magnificent views. Have a have a glass of uh, prosecco and a, or a coffee and a few sandwiches and, in, and enjoy what Newcastle's got to offer. Well, it's going to be Newcastle's newest landmark but it's going to be a landmark for generations to come do you sense that there is a i suppose a little bit of the hand of history on this development yeah honestly people talk about it and you know at first for me at first it was just another development but now when you're driving in now into the city center and all you see is this tower sticking out it makes you it gives you a little bit of it gives you quite a lot of pride to be honest yeah. with it and it's a statement of what we're going to try and achieve in the northeast as a company um, and yeah, hopefully this will this will be the most iconic residential uh, apartment block in the, in the northeast, certainly in the northeast, and certainly in Newcastle for many a year. Well, Gary, other things certainly count, but this tower confirms you as a northern business leader. Thank you for talking to us. Thanks a lot.